Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. President Donald Trump is taking credit for the current state of the economy, citing low unemployment and robust economic growth. But the president's trade wars and a growing budget deficit under his administration are stirring controversy. This week, a conversation with University of Minnesota economics professor Timothy Kehoe about trade and tariffs. It's the first of a two-part series on the state of the U.S. economy. While Professor Kehoe is an advisor to the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, his opinions are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the bank or the Federal Reserve System. We sat down with Professor Kehoe at his office at the U of M. Professor Kehoe, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. Oh, I'm, I'm happy to have a chance to talk to you. In September, President Trump negotiated a new U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. But with a newly elected Democratic House, the likelihood of the revised deal passing Congress seems to be a bit up in the air. First of all, why do you think that President Trump has been adamant about renegotiating the North American Free Trade Agreement? Now, that's a great question. And uh, I think it has to do with campaign promises. He attracted votes from the free trade agreements that the U.S. has negotiated uh, has become the bugaboo of politicians and, and workers in some states who see themselves losing jobs because of trade. Some jobs were lost because of trade. In fact, I have research that shows of the job losses in manufacturing at the peak uh, back about 10 years ago, a little bit, uh, 2005, 2006, maybe uh, 2 million of the uh, roughly 18 million jobs that were lost in the manufacturing sector were because of trade. Now, the other 16 million we're lost because of technology changes. But it's hard to disentangle that, and it's easier to blame trade. And that's something that uh, populist politicians on both the left and right uh, like to do, Jim. And uh, President Trump found it easy to attract uh, supporters because traditionally U.S. presidents, thinking about the overall uh, benefits of trade to the United States, have been free traders. In fact, uh, since uh, President Roosevelt back in the uh, 1930s, every U.S. president, Democrat and Republican, have pushed for free trade. So Mr. Trump, as a candidate, found he could attract some votes with the uh, anti-NAFTA and anti-TPP rhetoric. Now he realizes— Trans-Pacific Partnership. Trans-Pacific Partnership. I think he now realizes— Given his goal of containing China, and we can talk about that for a bit, but given that goal, canceling the U.S. participation in the TPP was a huge mistake. Our uh, allies around the Pacific Rim have decided to go ahead without us, and I think President Trump would want back in on that, or he currently does. But he found that he could attract voters blaming the loss of jobs in the manufacturing sector on trade. It never was particularly NAFTA. If it was anything, it was trade with China. And um, now he's in a conundrum. He wants to deliver. He's finding it impossible to deliver on some of his campaign promises. He wants to find something he can deliver on. Now, before we jump into the details, let me just uh, 
convey to you a fact or a kind of overarching reality that should color everything. So, you know, back in 1960, 30% of American workers worked in manufacturing. And now the number is a little bit over 10%. So looked at from that point of view, we're losing manufacturing. Now, in what year did the United States arrive at its peak, highest value of manufacturing output? Well, it's pretty easy, 2017. What year will beat that? 2018. You see, what's happening is productivity in manufacturing, the kind of goods, uh, high-tech goods and so forth that we produce, uh, we're getting so good at that that output in manufacturing is just rising all the time. And it's a fact about technology. We need fewer and fewer workers. Now, we as a country, people like me as economists, uh, uh, we need to think about that because we want good jobs for people. But to just say, oh, it's the fault of trade with Mexico or China that's causing this job loss is just, oh, it's uh, really, it, it, it's missing the whole point. What exactly was renegotiated in the New Deal with Canada and Mexico? Very little. So President Trump wants to call it the uh, USMCA, which is U.S. Mexico-Canada agreement. Our partners in the other countries don't want to call it that. In Mexico, they found it particularly awkward. They've now called it uh, TMEC, which is Tratado Mexico-Estados Unidos-Canada, which, of course, is the treaty of um, the Mexico, United States, and Canada. There's at least some order there. It goes from south to north. At this conference I was just in in... Uh, Toronto, the Canadians were calling it NAFTA too. Uh, but uh, President Trump wants to relabel it. 90% of it is identical to the old NAFTA. Now, le let me briefly mention what the differences are. President Trump wanted a sunset clause, uh, which would mean every five or six years was what the U.S. negotiators were really pushing for to start with. USMCA would dissolve itself and have to be reconstituted. The uh, Mexicans and Canadians, as well as all U.S. economists who pay attention to it, thought that that was a crazy idea. Uh, one of the benefits of a free trade agreement is it gives uh, investors some kind of signal of what's going to go on in the future. And so if you have uh, things like the North American automobile industry, if you're going to do investment, you want a little bit more certainty than five years. You, you want an idea, hey, what are business conditions going to be in, in, in the future? So fortunately, the, uh, the Mexican first, although I heard Prime Minister Trudeau speaking very strongly against the idea of sunset clauses, we got rid of that. Currently, there's a 16-year period for which uh, the new NAFTA is going to be in effect, and President Trump will be going one way or the other, uh, before that. And, and, and so no one's uh, thinking any of that's very serious. And um, he wanted to substitute, let me get a tiny bit technical here. NAFTA is a, or USMCA, is a free trade agreement. It is not a customs union. Now, the European Union started out as a customs union. It's more than that now because it has monetary union. It has uh, migration rules and so forth. But what does that mean? 
A European country cannot negotiate separately trade with anyone. It has to be the European Union because whatever the tariff they put on imports of agricultural goods in, in France have to be the same restrictions tariffs uh, that you put on in Italy or Germany. So it's one set of rules. U.S., Canada, and Mexico don't have that. So we have to decide when a product is a North American product. And that is particularly delicate in the case of automobiles, and that's where some of the big uh, changes have taken place. So with automobiles, for example, with most goods, the rule is that if some kind of good imported from the big exceptions, as I say, automobiles and textiles, textiles that become clothing, for example, but the big exception to those, the rules of origin that says that some sort of good that comes from Mexico or Canada entering this country is a North American good. What the standard rule is, you import components or raw materials, whatever, from Asia, the rest of Latin America, the Europe, whatever, as long as that gets transformed enough in the production process that statisticians call it a new good, a new type of good. So, for example, turning cotton into a shirt, that's that sort of transformation. But NAFTA doesn't say that a Chinese textile is transformed into a shirt or Mexican if it's done in Mexico. As the rules are much more stringent, but I just wanted to give you an idea. So what's the big set of changes? When is an automobile called a North American automobile? The rule was under NAFTA that 62.5% of its value had to be generated in North America. And so since NAFTA was implemented, but it even started back in the 1980s with the U.S.-Canada Auto Pact and the U.S.-Canada Free Trade Agreement, automobiles in the United States, Canada, Mexico produced by the big three, or at least what used to be the big three, of course, I mean Ford, uh, General Motors, and what has become of Chrysler, which is Dodge and Jeep. They're actually doing better than ever, but they were bought by Fiat. It was called Fiat Chrysler. Uh, the ownership is in uh, Italy, but it's headquartered in Canada. That's another story, but let's consider that like the big three. That's a North American industry. Every car you buy in the United States from the big three has components from all three countries in it. There's production sharing there. Sometimes in putting the engine or transmissions together, there are components in the engine that come from all three countries. So there's lots of what we call production sharing there. And the old rule said that 62.5% of the value of the car had to have been generated in North America. Now, the new rule says 75%. Turns out for the big three automobile manufacturers, that's hardly any problem at all. Most of the vehicles they produce already have more than 75% generated in North America. There's also a requirement that certain components of the cars have to be produced by workers who earn more than $16 an hour. 
In general, that's not even restrictive. The uh, Mexican workers who work on the assembly lines don't earn $16 an hour. They earn a high wage for Mexico, but less than that. $16 an hour is even higher than some of the U.S. workers earn. So there would be adjustments, but we're not talking big ones. So it's not going to have much effect there. What effects is it going to have? And automobile manufacturers, automobile parts manufacturers in Mexico, uh, who I talked to when I was at a conference in Miami a couple weeks ago, they're nervous about this. It's not really clear how these things are going to be enforced, if they're ever enforced, as you mentioned, with the uncertainty about the U.S. Congress. They're nervous about it because... It's not clear how it's going to be enforced, and there's a whole set of producers that are left out. And, Jim, you're saying, Tim, what do you mean? We're talking the big three. Don't they manufacture most of the cars in North America? Yes, they do. But think of the Toyota manufacturers in the United States, uh, Honda manufacturers in Canada, uh, Volkswagen, Audi, BMW manufacturers in Mexico. Those people were right at the 62 and a half, just so that they could call their cars. So the, 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 the Audi manufacturers in Mexico want access to U.S. markets, but they want as much German content in the car as they can. And they were getting, uh, you know, 37 and a half percent. And now they're going to have to reduce it to 25. They're going to have a choice. They retool their factory start outsourcing components that if they were manufactured in Mexico would be manufactured by workers who get less than $16 an hour or start buying from the United States. All of this, I guess, is possible, but it'll cause a lot of disruption. What's the other option? Just pay the tariff. Say, forget it. This is not a North American car. It doesn't meet the requirements. Just export it to the United States. And right now, given our commitments as part of being members of the WTO, the maximum tariff we can put on an imported car is 2.5%. So that's what the Germans would want to do. But they think that it's possible the Trump administration, as it's threatened to do, will ignore our commitments to the WTO, cite national security concerns, and slap on a bigger tariff. Then uh, Germany, Mexico, and so forth will make complaints against the United States through the WTO. That'll take a while to get resolved, and President Trump is threatening just to drop out of the WTO. So there is uncertainty. And where is it? It's particularly in automobile industry. And then there's Canadian dairy farmers. Dairy's a sacred cow politically <laughs> in Canada. Much the same way, and, and Jim, you'll, uh, this will ring some bells with you, much the same way that sugar is in the United States. For all kinds of political reasons, it has an importance in politics that far outweighs its economic importance. And of course, we know about that here in Minnesota because uh, the Red River Valley in Minnesota and, and North Dakota, uh, there's farmers who make a lot of money 
because of the U.S. sugar program. And U.S. politicians, economists, and so forth, we're embarrassed about that. We pay really exorbitant prices for sugar in the United States. I've heard people from the sugar industry talking about how, oh, yeah, but the prices are stable. Actually, consumers like prices that are lower and variable, and then you buy when it's cheap. But uh, people haven't studied economics there. It's much better to have low prices, even if they're volatile. Any person who goes to the grocery stores looking for sales knows that. That's not much of an argument. Well, Canadian consumers are going to do better uh, having to let in not much U.S. dairy. And Canadian economists think, wow, that was a good move, kind of breaking the political power of uh, dairy producers in Canada. At least that's what off the record or my Canadian economist friends tell me. But why is that there? That's President Trump wanting to kind of rub Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's uh, nose into the ground and say, I won on this, even though it's a very minor point. Now, in general, this is the new agreement is NAFTA with pieces on a certain areas where NAFTA needed to be uh, updated, just a couple pages out of well, much more than a few pages. These are long agreements, uh, Xeroxed and stuffed in from the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, with those uh, exceptions that I just mentioned to you. Steel and aluminum are the main targets of Trump's tariffs. How will this affect the economy and specifically Minnesota's economy? We were talking about the USMCA, NAFTA II, uh, and that is not specifically steel aluminum. is not addressed there. I'm leaving that aside because that's not part of this agreement, but that's something that's affecting all of our trade. And that's going to affect the car industry that we were just talking about because that's going to up the cost. But what is the overall result of the changes for the automobile industry from the USMCA as, or NAFTA 2 as opposed to NAFTA 1? It's going to make cars produced in North America, especially cars produced in the United States, it's going to make them more expensive. The steel and aluminum tariffs are going to make them more expensive. Right now, there's a worldwide automobile industry in which we compete. Now, we don't compete that much with our neighbors in Canada and Mexico. Yeah, Canada produces a lot of Hondas, and, and Mexico produces a lot of Audis, and we produce a lot of Toyotas. We export Toyotas to Japan. But no, in general, Canada and Mexico are allies in this competition, producing Fords, Chevrolets, Dodge, Jeep, so forth. Those are North American products. We want to compete, and we want to sell them in other countries. So the USMCA and the steel and aluminum tariffs are going to protect some U.S. jobs in steel and even iron extraction, you know, as you move further back up the production process. So it will generate some new jobs, but there's far more jobs. If, if we end up saving 10,000 jobs or giving higher pay to 20,000 U.S. iron, steel, so forth workers, 
There are hundreds of thousands of workers who work in the steel-using sectors. They're going to find their jobs at risk because we're going to become less competitive with our competitors in other countries. Applying those tariffs on Mexico and Canada was a little bit crazy from an economic point of view because Canadians export steel to the United States, but they import steel from the United States. If you're right on the border, it's you go with the cheaper producer on either side and the same with Mexican producers. There, even think of the geography of the Great Lakes with the, the case of Canada. You can picture that. The Canadian producer who uses steel would have been importing U.S. steel or maybe Canadian steel, but they think, oh, let's look for the cheapest supplier right now, and it goes both ways. There were people who were not thinking clearly there when we put the tariffs on uh, the Mexican and Canadian steel, but let's not think about that. Let's think about Chinese-Brazilian uh, producers. And that's a perfect segue. Where does the U.S. stand with China currently? Are we officially in a trade war with them? We're in the opening stages of what could be a trade war. If you look at what's happened since about January 1st of this year, uh, you see that we have tariffs right now that we've just put on about 10, 12% of the imports that enter the United States and a much higher fraction of the uh, Chinese exports that enter the United States. And the Chinese have retaliated. Now, the Chinese are not the biggest importers of U.S. goods. Uh, so they can hurt us through the tariffs. Incidentally, of course, who are the biggest importers of U.S. goods? Uh, they're Canada and Mexico. But Canada and Mexico trade more with the United States than the whole European Union uh, put together. But we do a lot of business with China. We borrow a lot of money from China. U.S. manufacturers want to access the Chinese market, which is the fastest-growing consumer market in the world. And we have lots of uh, foreign direct investment there so that we can make money producing our goods in China and selling it to the Chinese. The Chinese, if we enter a serious trade war, have all kinds of ways in which they can retaliate against us. Let me mention... Uh, just before we think about any of the details, I'm going to dare to uh, contradict President Trump. Uh, trade wars are not easy to win. Trade wars are like real wars. In general, nobody wins. Everybody suffers. Well, how has history treated tariffs and trade wars? When we think about tariffs that have harmed the economy, the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act enacted in 1930 as the Great Depression took hold often is cited as a rather infamous example of protectionism gone awry. Fantastic example, Jim. During the 1930s, the end of 1920s, it was the very end of the 1920s and 1930s, countries all over the world started enacting restrictions on trade with other countries. Economic theory even explains that to you. If one country enacts tariffs the kinds of uh, restrictions on trade against another country. Under many circumstances, that forces the other country to 
pay a little bit more for the goods from the United States we're thinking about. So a U.S. tariff makes it more difficult for Chinese, for example, to export to us. And that means when the Chinese want things from us, they actually have to pay more. That's just a point in economic theory that's pretty well understood so that it's not irrational to put on tariffs. The problem is if everybody puts on tariffs, everybody's worse off. It's like if you hold up your neighbor at gunpoint, you can make yourself better off. But then if he holds you up back, you're both worse off. So that was the trade wars that happened throughout the 1930s and very high levels of tariffs. We're not there yet. And that's what a serious trade war would be. It's part of one of the things economists uh, and lots of historians think that's what led to World War II. And, you know, towards the end of the Second World War, the uh, allies who had started calling themselves the United Nations thought, what can we do to keep things like World War II from happening? And uh, economists and political uh, figures from the allied nations, the United Nations, got together in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, and hammered out what they thought the rules for economic interaction were going to be in the post-war period. And they wanted to set up three what we now call Bretton Woods institutions. They were the IMF, uh, the International Monetary Fund, to keep countries from uh, engaging in this currency manipulation, as some people like to call it, using uh, exchange rates to try to make their goods cheaper. The World Bank, which was to give loans and different kinds of projects to promote development in less developed countries, and something called the International Trade Organization, which was going to keep trade wars from happening. Now, for various reasons, the ITO didn't really get going, although there was a preliminary step to creating the ITO that was enacted, which was a treaty among the countries that founded the United Nations, called the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, the GATT. That was meant to be a step towards setting up the ITO, and it was, in retrospect, because finally, it didn't get going in the late 40s, but it finally did in 1994, but they ended up calling it the World Trade Organization, not the International Trade Organization. And that was set up to prevent trade wars. But you can see... There's a clause in the GATT, the WTO accession treaties, as they're called now, that lets countries enact temporary tariffs for various reasons, but they're specific reasons, except one says national security. And that is what the Trump administration is using. And we're on the first step towards trade wars all over the place. We've been speaking with University of Minnesota economics professor Timothy Kehoe from his campus office. Again, while Professor Kehoe is an advisor to the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank, his opinions are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the bank or the Federal Reserve System. Next week on Dialogue Minnesota, we continue our conversation with the professor on the impact of tariffs on Minnesota the recent announcement by General Motors that it will close plants and lay off workers, and the overall state of the U.S. economy. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening. See you next week.